Good morning. Welcome to Bethel HP. My name is Stephen Ganchow. I serve uh, with humility as the pastor of counseling, and it's a joy for me to be with you here again this morning, opening up God's Word and uh, continuing our study of the life of Moses. Over the last couple of weeks, as Pastor Steve has alluded to over the stream, as we've all watched together, because I've been here with you over the last two weeks as well, uh, you've heard that we're not necessarily preaching exegetically through the book of Exodus, which is where much of the story of Moses' life is found, but in fact, we're going to be expositing the life of Moses specifically, drawing principles of the life of Moses out of a variety of different places, two of which you'll find this morning. The first of which I'll encourage you to have a Bible open to, which is Exodus chapter 2. So if you're one that likes to follow along, I'll encourage you to grab your Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 2, and we'll be there in just a little while. As I was sitting over there in both services, I I had this urge to jettison my entire sermon (laughs) and just pray. And if you've been around HP now for a little while, you know that I've been here and with you a number of times, and I've even preached on prayer here not long ago, and I had the urge to refresh just that while I was sitting over there, because I still have it on my iPad, and just go back through it, and we were just going to spend some time praying. But then I thought to myself, I had another idea, because that idea was germinating as I saw all of the things that are happening in our church body flashing across that screen. And this, this happened in both services where I thought to myself, boy, there are a lot of people that are in the wilderness right now, which is God's sovereignty because at the very end of our time together, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give us principles to walk through the wilderness together because that's where we're going to find Moses end up today is in the wilderness. So instead of jettisoning my sermon, which we were this close, this close to doing, We're going to do something just a little bit different. First, I'm going to recap to you why we are where we are and how we got here. Second, we're going to go through a little bit of the story of Moses that we need to cover in Exodus chapter 2 today. And then third, we're going to draw out of the wilderness where Moses lands a number of principles that I think are going to be important for our lives as well. So the first thing we're going to do then is the recap. Where is it that we are in Moses' story? And week one of our series, we took a look at everything that led up to Moses being born. What was the context of life that Moses was born into? A good starting place, I would submit to you, is the life of Joseph, where we actually rewind time a little bit. And we know Joseph, he was the guy that had the multicolored coat. He had 11 brothers. He was the son of Jacob, and he was the prized son of Jacob. None of his brothers liked Joseph, so they threw him in a pit, thought about killing him, and then eventually sold him into slavery. Great times, right? Well, what happens as Joseph gets sold into slavery is a series of events where God positions and moves Joseph throughout Egypt. And he lands him, according to Genesis 50:20, in a very unique position where he is able to, with confidence, tell his brothers when they reunite many years later, what you intended for evil, God has used for good. So what happened is Joseph moved his family to Goshen, which is a land just right outside of Egypt, and they lived there the rest of the days of their lives. And then Joseph dies. Joseph died, and Joseph, though, he ascended in that time to being the second in command of all of Egypt. He was in a significant position of prominence. He was able to just plant his family in Goshen. They all lived a very good life in the middle of very difficult times. But Joseph dies, and his brothers die, 
And the Pharaoh that Joseph served under as literally the second in command of all of Egypt, he dies as well. And time moves on. And as time moves on, Israel grows. Numerically, they are populating a great deal. God has abundantly blessed the people of Israel to grow into the massive group that we, really, we literally read throughout the whole of the rest of the Old Testament. What happens, very literally, is they become a massive people group. Massive. So much so that Pharaoh, the new Pharaoh, sees this growing people group over in Goshen and he starts to get a little nervous. Like, these people could literally come and overthrow us. They are so numerically large, we have to do something about it. So he does. He tries subjugation, he tries slavery, and he tries genocide, amongst a handful of other things that we talked about in week number one. That's the world Moses is born into. Week number two, last week, what we talked about how, is how Moses was spared the genocide through God's providential moving. And the clever even-handedness of Moses' mom and older sister. He ends up being adopted into the household of Pharaoh himself. The very person trying to eliminate Israel. And is raised by one of Pharaoh's daughters. So that's the context. That's where we are today. We left Moses as a baby and we find him now somewhere else. And I'm going to ask that you stand for the reading of God's word as we find out where he is. We're going to read starting from Exodus 2 in uh, verse 11 all the way to 25. So it says this, One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him, and hit him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. And when Pharaoh heard it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flocks. When they came home and told their father, Reuel, he said, how is it that you have come home so soon? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hands of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may come eat bread. So Moses was content to dwell with the man and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son and he called his name Jershom for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because, their because of their slavery and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. This is the word of the Lord. Have a seat. Eighty years, 14 verses. 
No big deal. We're going to cover 80 years in 14 verses. We left Moses last week as a baby, and today we find him grown as a man. But fascinatingly enough, the text does not tell him, tell us exactly how old he is. If you're just going to read Exodus, we really have no idea how old Moses is. But thankfully, if we're going to do some inductive Bible study, we're actually able to learn a little bit more about the state of Moses at this point. But we're going to fast forward then. Instead of rewinding to Joseph, now we'll fast forward all the way up to the New Testament in the book of Acts. And in Acts chapter 7, ironically, we find a man named Stephen defending his faith to the chief priests and a number of other religious, religious elites of that day. And in the midst of defending his faith, what he does is he recaps the Old Testament, not dissimilarly from what I just did to get us to this point. And as Stephen is doing that, he's able to tell us in Acts chapter 7, verse 23, that Moses, at this exact moment, was 40 years old. Now, we don't know how Stephen knows that, but he asserts it with a level of prominence. And that actually allows us then to break Moses' life down into three distinct parts. Egypt, as a prince of Egypt, this season right now that we're going to learn about his life, starting at age 40, and then the significant portion of his life that most of the rest of Exodus is about, which is very helpful if we're trying to learn the story of Moses, which is much of what this series is designed to do. So at 40 years old, Exodus chapter 2.11 tells us, Moses went out to his people to look upon their burdens. That's a very specific word. Burdens would imply uh, and have it invoked strong emotion from Moses. Burdens would be akin to suffering. So he's seeing their suffering. And in the midst of that, the Bible goes on to tell us, especially if we fast forward back up to the book of Acts chapter 7, that it was God that even placed the motivation in Moses' heart to do this at all. Again, Exodus doesn't tell us that, but we find if we're going to see the whole story, knowing the entirety of the Bible as it speaks about Moses is helpful. Another interesting thing that we can draw out of the text here, and this is one of the themes you're going to hear from me is an English reading of this is going to be a little bit different than the Hebrew, the original language reading of this specific portion of Scripture. Because while, the, while our English Bible alludes to it, the text does not tell us whether or not Moses actually knew if he was a, an Israelite. He doesn't actually know here whether or not he's a Hebrew, at least it doesn't tell us. He might know but it doesn't actually tell us if he does or not. And yet you stare at that and it's kind of like, it really seems like he does. Why do I point these things out? And why do I share, uh, I'm going to share a lot of things related to, the, to this idea with you. Because it is important that we as Christians are students of the Bible. It is a good thing for us to occasionally grab a Bible commentary and go a level deeper into what the Bible says. And in fact, this very short passage of Scripture, these 14 verses encompassing 80 years, there's a lot of disagreement about what these verses mean. So I'm going to present to you quite a bit of information for you to wrestle through this morning to that end. Regardless, what we know is this, based on the Hebrew language of this moment as Moses is perceiving things, he is overwhelmed by compassion and empathy. He is burdened for the suffering of Israel at the very least. Now, Stephen, up in the book of Acts chapter 7, he would assert to you that not only was Moses burdened by the Lord, he was very much aware that he was a Hebrew. 
as I have pondered this and I've read a number of different things on it and just went back and looked at the original language, even though we don't have the express statement here in Exodus, I personally tend to think, and I think we can confidently think, Moses was aware of his Hebrew or Israelite lineage here. He was, he was very much aware that he was relationally, or at least blood, connected to these folks. So Moses is venturing among his people. He's observing their suffering. He's taking it in. The language is emotional towards empathy and compassion. We see he's just seeing all of these things taking place. And then he comes upon, in the midst of this, an Egyptian beating an Israelite. And this is where our story takes something of an unpleasant left turn. Exodus 2 verse 12 says, He looked this way and that, And seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. This is a very complicated passage of Scripture. And in order to understand Moses' story correctly, we're actually going to pause here and unpack it. So you see how it is at times we actually have to study the Bible. On its nose, if you just went and read this verse exactly as it comes out of the English Bible, this is kind of what this section, these two verses would read like. It reads, So one day... Moses decided to see the real state of things for who he likely knew was his native people. And as he was taking it in a bit, seeing the horrors of slavery, he came upon an Egyptian physically accosting an Israelite. So Moses stops and he takes a look around so that he can see that no one is looking for him, and he kills this Egyptian because he's hurting an Israelite. And boy, you read that, and it looks an awful lot like premeditated murder, doesn't it? Which is very uncomfortable, given that Hebrews later talks about Moses and other places talk about Moses as a hero of the faith, which is why we must, must, must understand this in the context of the language that it was written in. Now, some of you might be getting a little wiggly here, thinking, is the pastor about to excuse a man of murder? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked. No. No. Because something horrible did happen here. But we must understand what actually happened here. The language of the passage is not indicative of premeditated murder. Moses killed this Egyptian. There is no question about that. But the original language indicates, and Bible scholars and even independent historians who have looked at this story and the language surrounding it, they all indicate that this was a reactive action In our kind of modern 2022 vernacular, we could look at this and think, this is a crime, a reactive crime of passion, which is why I spend so much time kind of unpacking verse 11 for us, because verse 11 sets the stage and sets the tone for what Moses experienced as he came upon this. Remember, verse 11 says, Moses went out to his people and looked on their burdens. What does this actually mean? It means that Moses came upon something of an atrocity, and he was perceiving atrocity. Have you ever watched something, maybe in the last few days, and felt the emotion rising? You see something that's wrong, and you feel the emotion rising. You feel the the self-righteousness, you feel the anger, you feel the sense of justice rising. That is what the language here is indicative of. 
there's also the potential, given that if Moses knew that he was an Israelite, here he was thinking about the fact that he was a prince of Egypt, an Israelite prince of Egypt at that, and he's staring at his people enduring overwhelming suffering. At the very least, what we know beyond a shadow of a doubt is that Moses came upon an incredible amount of human trauma, suffering, and injustice. To the point where what happens is he comes upon an act of injustice and he reacts. But he reacts very, very badly. Some Bible scholars, and I don't, I don't agree with this, just so you know. But again, if I'm encouraging you to do your own Bible study, I have to tell you things like this so you don't stumble into something unaware. Some Bible scholars, such as Kenneth Barker and John Kohlenberger, they go so far as to note that our English translation of this verse is not in the right order. And that what we should do is read it something more akin to Moses reacts and he goes and he kills this guy, but he does it in kind of an emotional rage. And then he's like coming back to himself. And that is when he looks around and is like, oh no, (laughs) I should bury the body. I would submit to you that is not the organization of the verse, at least not the way that I read it. But those things are out there and you will come upon them as you study passages like this. I think what I would like to do for the sake of time, because I really want to get to the wilderness, is I want to summarize this point. The summary here, and I summarize it because there's something I want specifically on our minds, because something happens here. We're beginning to get get a glimpse of Moses and this man that he's going to become. So it's important for us to not leave this moment with the wrong impression. The wrong idea, the thing not to think here is Moses murderer. That is not the story. The story is Moses, chronic reactor. Some of you know the story of Moses. Those of you ladies who have been in Women of the Word, you've done a deep dive of some of these things over the last number of months already. You know some of what I'm going to talk about now. The point here is that we see something big in the life of Moses that starts right here. Chronic reactivity plagues Moses all the days of his life. It is a theme in his life, so much so that he breaks tablets. He smashes a rock, not once, but twice. He chronically reacts in anger. It is literally reactive anger on the part of Moses that prevents him from entering the promised land. He does not get home because he repeatedly reacts in anger. What we are stumbling upon here are the first instances of these things in Moses' life. No matter what happened here, which the Bible does not tell us the exact circumstances, we can, we can draw out what we believe. We can look at the language, but no matter what happened here, it was wrong. Moses killing this man was wrong, but it was not an act of premeditated murder. That we can establish by the language. And two, we can definitively say it was wrong because Moses' conscience bothered him. How do we know Moses' conscience bothered him? He hid the body. He looked this way and that and ended up hiding the body. Now, this is, again, something of a place of contention for Bible scholars because they're all like, he's a prince of Egypt. Could he not just say, I came upon an act of injustice and did something about it? And there's some confusion to that end. There's not a lot of firm agreement about that. But there are some things that we can kind of think through. One of them, some people make the case that 
Moses already knew that he was God's divine ambassador. He already knew that he was the deliverer of Egypt. And he went about it in a very poor way right here. And Stephen, up in Acts chapter 7, he seems to allude to the fact that that may be what's happening here. Others speculate, though, that because Moses was a Hebrew raised in Pharaoh's home, that this was an act of betrayal after Moses enjoyed the benefits of being an Egyptian. That Pharaoh saw his adopted grandson potentially rising up against him, and Moses was afraid of that, so he hid the body because he, he didn't want that stigma. It's outside of the scope of our time together to really unpack all of the options, because there's a bunch of other things here, too, that we can talk about. But I have always been a fan, and you've heard me say this phrase before, but I'm going to repeat it again. I think the most important thing we can do here is let the Bible speak for itself. We need to go back to Exodus chapter 1, which is why I actually recapped for you what happened. In Exodus chapter 1, we learn a lot about Pharaoh, the new one. Pharaoh is very fearful of the people group of Israel. They are massive. And he tries subjugation. He tried slavery, he tried genetic corruption, and finally he tried genocide. And here he has his adoptive grandson potentially sparking an event that might cause an insurrection on the part of the slaves, Israel. No matter how you slice it, this would be really bad, and Moses' concern here would be very, very warranted. So Moses hides the body and presumably leaves. Then the next day, what he does is he comes back. And the way the text reads is he's continuing to do this work of observation. He's continuing to take in the slavery and the suffering and the injustices of Israel. Only this time, what he does is he comes upon a very similar altercation. Not between an Egyptian and a Hebrew, but between two different Hebrews, two different Israelites. An important note here, I'm going to stop and actually give you a Greek word, nakah. What nakah means is that this was a very similar conflict. There was a clear right person and there was a clear wrong person in both conflicts. These were exactly the same types of conflicts, just with different groups of people. Does that make sense? So Moses, though, he comes upon this and instead of handling it the way he did the day before, he tries a different approach. He asks a question. Murder, question asking, small difference, right? We can agree on that. Not a big problem here at all. So in Exodus 2.13, he walks up and he's like, why do you strike your companion? Well, this interaction goes belly up real quick. Because this guy's like, hey, weren't you just the guy that killed the Egyptian yesterday? Are you going to kill us too? Obviously, Moses is dismayed by this reality. And Moses, in this moment, engages in yet another reaction. He reacted yesterday, and now he's reacting yet again today. Exodus 2, 14 and 15 says, Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. Now once again, 14 verses spanning 80 years, we don't have a ton of data here. And again, you'd think to yourself, Moses is a prince of Egypt. How on earth has he not gotten out of this? I would again appeal to Exodus chapter 1 because it does seem, biblically, historically speaking, the most plausible reality. Moses and Pharaoh were almost certainly both aware of Moses' heritage and anything that looked 
and smelled and tasted like an Israelite insurrection, Pharaoh, as he has repeatedly done now, is going to try and squash it. So Moses ran. And boy, did Moses run. Because at a minimum, the distance between Egypt and Midian is 300 miles. At a maximum, it was about 360 miles. So it is a pretty significant haul between those two places. And again, it's important. We remember Moses is 40 years old. What we know of history at this point is Moses was probably in near-peak physical condition for his age. Certainly so as a prince of Egypt as well. So let's just presume that Moses, at 40 years of age, in peak physical condition, hauls it to Midian. He would have to run a minimum of 20 miles a day. He'd have to accomplish 20 miles a day on foot consecutively for two straight weeks to get from Egypt to Midian. The likelihood of that is not high because, I mean, he would have just been trucking constantly. And honestly, where do you hide in the wilderness? The more likely conclusion, and again, this is why we study history and other things and we read Bible commentaries because it unpacks some of this. It is more likely like Joseph before him. You kind of see the theme that I'm, I'm drawing for us today. He was probably a part of a caravan, and he probably joined other groups of people so that he would blend in a little bit in the midst of traveling. And it is likely that between two and four weeks, Moses traveled from Egypt to Midian. And he arrives in Midian, and what does he do? He sits down by a well. Why would somebody sit down by a well? Probably because he's thirsty. And they're like, let's just take, let's take pity on this guy. He looks terrible. <laughs> In truth, we don't know why Moses sat by the well. But again, thinking biblio-historically, the likelihood is Moses left Egypt very, very quickly. Maybe only had on the clothes of his back and whatever he could grab along the way. The probability is he was hoping someone would take pity on him and give him some water. So he's sitting by this well, and the seven daughters of the priest of Midian show up. And as the seven daughters of the priest of Midian are there, what ends up happening is some shepherds come. And these shepherds are trying to drive away the seven daughters of the priest of Midian so that they can water their flocks. The text doesn't indicate any other malicious intent. They were just selfish guys that wanted to water their sheep. Well, Moses, here again, sees an act of injustice. And what does Moses do? He rises up, he defends these women, and then what does he do ironically after that? After he drives the shepherd away, shepherds away, what does he do? He waters their flocks. Why would he do that? Probably because he was thirsty. Does that make sense? It would make sense that after traveling for like a month with no stuff, he would want to take any excuse he could to revive his body. And again, this is not all in the text. This is why we must be good students of the Bible. Well, the seven daughters of the Midianite priest, what do they do? They go. They go back to their dad. His name is Ruel or Riel, depending on your translation. And he asks them in Exodus 2.18, how are you back so soon? And they, they, they recount to him the story of what happens. And the guy is like, did, did you bring him with you? Like, go get the guy. Let's at least reward him with a meal, for goodness sakes. And that's what happened. They go get him, they bring him back, and Moses then is offered the opportunity to live in the priest of Midian's house, so much so that he offers him one of his daughters in marriage, named Zipporah. They get married, they have a child, and interestingly enough, Moses names this child a name that means sojourner 
in a foreign land. Well, we can infer from that, after all of these events, a month of travel, Moses gets there, he gets to this well, he gets to Midian, he's invited into a place he can now call his home, has a child, we know that takes approximately nine months. Moses has had some time to think. So much time to think that he says, you know what, I'm just going to stay here. He accepts the reality of his situation and he stays there as a shepherd for 40 years. But there's just a handful more. Verses 23 through 25 note that in those same 40 years where Moses is aging from 40 to 80, that Israel continues to suffer. Pharaoh died, but Israel's burdens did not decrease, they increased. So much so that Israel cries out to God, God hears them, and God answers. And next week, that is where we are going to pick up the story of Moses. Is at the age of 80, God calls to Moses. But here's the thing. In order for Moses to be ready at age 80, he had to go through the wilderness first. That wasn't bad. 14 verses, 80 years. What do we learn about the wilderness, though? I would submit to you we can learn a lot from the wilderness. And those of you, again, those of you in Women of the Word, you know some of this already. But pre-Midian, pre-wilderness Moses, he was a very, very different man than post-Midian, post-wilderness Moses. Now, as the pastor of counseling, I would be a very poor pastor of counseling if I didn't try and give you some ideas of how it is that we can take a wilderness experience for ourselves and bring it to bear in our own lives. Because I think, if we're being honest, we saw a lot of things up on those screens, and they're from all of us. The same, I can tell you, having been in both services, the things you saw this service are the things from the people sitting around you. They weren't just a repeat from any of the other campuses or the first service. They were yours. These are wilderness seasons that many of us find ourselves in, and we are often left asking and wondering, why? We enter into these desert wilderness times, we see nothing but vast nothing around us, and we're looking for anything to get us out of this insurmountable, vast space where there seems like there is no hope. And we're left asking a question, maybe even like Moses, is the wilderness where I belong? Should I just stay here? So what do we learn from the wilderness? I would submit to you the answer will come from Psalm chapter 63. Psalm 63 is written by David. I'm not going to, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read Psalm 63. But if you are in the wilderness this morning, Psalm 63 was written for you. David is either, we don't know for sure, David was either on the run from Saul in 1st, I think it's 1st Samuel, I have it written down, it's uh, 1 Samuel 23 or 2 Samuel 15. I was going to say 15. But 1 Samuel 23 or 2 Samuel 15. He was either on the run from Saul or he was on the run from Absalom. Based on the language used, I trend toward thinking he was on the run from his son Absalom. But either way, he was in, in not just a figurative wilderness, but a literal wilderness as well. And repeatedly draws out lessons that he writes down and compiles for us in this psalm. So what are the things that it should teach us? First, the wilderness 
should cause us to pray. This is not just a week of prayer hamstring in. It'd be easy to think that. David was driven into the wilderness for fear of his life. And what does he do? The very first thing he says is he seeks God's presence. Listen to Psalm 63 verse 1. It says, Oh God, you are my God. I earnestly seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. In the dry and weary land where there is no water. That's very poetic, but very realistic language. That is where David found himself. The posture here that David has is one who is correct. There are these wilderness seasons that threaten to drive us away from God. These things that we want to lament about, but we we don't understand. We don't know why. And because we don't know why, we get discouraged. What David says is he instead of only lamenting, the very first thing he does is he declares God as steadfast, he declares God as loving, he declares God as worthy of blessing and worthy of praise, which is a fascinating place for any person to begin. If you are caught up in a wilderness season right now, don't just pray that God will deliver you from the wilderness. Don't just ask to get out. We should not only get caught up in getting out of these wilderness seasons. And we shouldn't only praise God and go to God in prayer when things are good because what that does is it creates a very transactional faith where when God blesses me, I'll pray to him. And that is not at all what the Bible describes. In the wilderness where we don't understand the reason God allows things, it is equally if not more important to commune with the Lord. Church, pray. Seek his presence. Be there not just under compulsion or desperation. Be there by choice. Next. The wilderness should cause us to reflect. It should cause us to think about how I got here. We should be striving to answer that question. How did I get here? This is a very specific question. And I want to point something out to you. I didn't ask why. You ever ask your children, why? When you ask your kids why, what is it that they say? I don't know. It's very helpful. You ever ask why as an adult? You're still not going to get a great answer most of the time. Because sometimes, for our circumstances, there is no discernible why. I I would submit to you, asking questions is not wrong. But it is essential to ask the right questions. Asking, how did I get here? That is a specific question. And specific questions often solicit specific answers. It gives us the opportunity to reflect on causes, decisions, circumstances, and people. And I think if Moses is anything like the rest of humankind, which we know him to be, it is very likely that he himself did quite a bit of reflection on that, the decisions that he made that fateful day in Egypt. And we're able to say that because we know that Moses chose to settle down in a foreign land. Really, what asking requ- reflective questions does is it allows us to learn. We're able to learn, and, and in learning, maybe learn our way out of the wilderness. 
What's the third thing? The third thing is the wilderness should cause us to pursue God's exit strategy, not ours. We want out. We want the dry land to become life again. We want trees and grass and water. We want the mirage in the desert to be real. Implicit to all of David's writing, regardless of whether or not it was 1 Samuel 23 or 2 Samuel 15, is God's deliverance. David truly, personally believed that God and God alone would provide a way of escape. He wasn't looking for his way of escape as it's written to us in the text. He was looking for God's exit strategy. The problem with this idea is that we live in an immediate satisfaction culture. We have very, very little patience, I would submit to you, largely thanks to these. We want what we want and we want it now, as the 90s pop song would say. That is how we live our lives. We want immediate answers immediate satisfaction. We want a gas station when we are hitting a fourth of a tank because it was our fault for not filling up at half a tank, by the way. We want what we want when we want it. And we live in a world that tells us you should have it. We live in a world that says you can have it your way. All of these things condition us to think for ourselves, I will find my own way. And I would submit to you that if reflection and question asking are means by which we should learn in the wilderness, then maybe questions are some of our exit from the wilderness. Maybe not questions like, how long, O Lord? Which is a good question, but one that you probably would not like the answer to. But I would submit to you a better question. God, what would you have me learn so my wilderness wanderings will end? Which is, by the way, in and of itself, a reason for prayer, taking us back to the first point of Psalm 63. To that, I commend to you the week of prayer. Not just for yourself, not just for Ukraine, but for our community. That prayer drive is going to be really important. You should do it. Get your family together and do it. Get your small group together and go and do it. Be people of prayer. Next week, then, I look forward to gathering again with you and considering what Moses learned in the 40 years of the wilderness and where God takes him next.